Hello, all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm the founder of this podcast and of CoveyClub.com, where you can find all kinds of reinvention info, help, essays, inspiration, whatever it is. Mosey on over there. Check it out. You will find a different type of thing than the podcast but all in service to getting you to that next place that you want to be. Believe me, I've been in that struggle myself, and that's why I started Cubby Club. It's really rotten to do it by yourself. It's so much better to do it with a group. So today I have for you Donna Cryer, who's the founder, president, and chief executive officer of the Global Liver Institute, the only patient-driven liver health nonprofit operating in the U.S. and Europe. She's a. She also has her uh, JD. She she was a lawyer for a short time, and the story that she's going to tell you about, which is so interesting, is her personal uh, issue with healthcare and her own liver transplant at age 27, and what she saw inside the healthcare system that made her start her own nonprofit. And many of you who are listening have somebody in your life who is having a healthcare issue and you're saying, why can't this be better? Why isn't someone focusing on this? What, you know, this system needs to change. What's so fantastic is listening to Donna talk about, she actually has a little academy specifically focused on liver advocacy, but she says you can take it um, and you can apply the steps to any disease, any issue you want. And she's thrilled to have people do that and then move on and spin it out to um, whatever healthcare advocacy they're trying to do. So even if you're not necessarily concerned about liver, though she says you should be and that you're gonna be shocked to find out physicians know very little bit about our liver. You can learn so much from Donna and her reinvention that you can apply to your own. So I am not going to speak anymore. I'm going to turn you over to the wonderful Donna Cryer. Here she is. So welcome, Donna. Glad to have you at the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's start with your personal journey, because a lot of people are going to be interested, you know, so many people after the age of 40, sometimes before, will end up in a health situation um, that they often think is the end of everything, and they can't um, go on from there. So maybe start with yourself, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, and what you came out of school doing, and then we can talk about the health crisis and how that led you to what you're doing now. Sure. I grew up in Connecticut and both my parents were school teachers. And so uh, education was always important. And we were always reading, you know, two or three books at a time was the family norm. And uh, I always, you know, knew that I was going to be a, an attorney um, or at least an advocate, um, as it turned out. Um, between first and second years of law school, though, um, I got very sick and needed a liver transplant. And so uh, the course of my advocacy changed, but the you know core um, 
you know, part of my being that wanted to fix things, change things, um, stayed, stayed the same. So I uh, finished law school and I have been in healthcare um, ever since in a variety of uh, iterations. And you were working for big companies. What were you doing in big companies in healthcare? No, for the most part, I was not in a big company. Um, I I have been more of an advisor consultant. So I have been in nonprofits and for profits, uh, global PR firms, and um, built a multicultural division of a, of a clinical trial recruitment firm, uh, and now have. Uh, eight years into having founded uh, my own patient advocacy organization. And I think our organization um, definitely bears my sort of consulting advisor DNA, but now we are uh, consultants to, you know, the entire field of digestive health. So tell me a little bit about what happened, what was your situation and, and, and um, was it a, something in your family? Was it genetic? Well, you know, was it something that happened out of the blue or any reasoning there? You know, uh, like many women, I had um, an autoimmune disease. Ah. And uh, so my, uh, the particular way that it manifested in me was in inflammatory bowel disease. And then in a uh, small number of cases that develops into rare autoimmune liver diseases. And oh, so that's I why I was developing, uh, you know, by the time I was in my twenties was developing uh, colon cancer and needed to have my colon removed and needed a liver transplant. And so, um, you know, so many people unfortunately die because there aren't enough organs available, but right. I was blessed to receive a, a liver transplant um, and I'm now, you know, 28 years post post transplant, which makes me sort of a, you know, a pioneer this far out. Oh my goodness, absolutely. And so, talk about what you do now, and talk about patient advocacy, because we all know, and this again, as we get a little older, we are all, even if we've been notoriously healthy, we are mm -hmm. all running into the care issues and the issues with our healthcare system, either for us a partner, a child, a parent. So talk a little bit about that because that is something, I mean, I, I hear and I experienced it. Our healthcare system is definitely difficult. So it is really an honor to use my lived experience, um, even the, and perhaps especially the most painful parts of my journey to, um, help solve problems in the healthcare system. So the Global Liver Institute, um, you know, just started from an idea, uh, a, a, a need um, and a desire that other patients coming behind me would have access to the same uh, type of innovation that saved my life and frankly sustains me today. And, and uh, you know, we see uh, large organizations like the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, and we always think, well, they just always were, but that's not the case. Somebody had to start them. And so the Global Liver Institute, uh, you know, was very much, uh, you know, and many of those advocacy organizations like mine are founded by women, founded by someone's, you know, mother or sister, um, wanting to make sure that what happened to their family didn't happen to someone else's family. And so they grow from, you know, our own 
uh, knowledge and networks um, into what you know our organization is is today uh, with offices in three countries and partnerships in uh, 70 and a, a growing grassroots network across the US and Canada of community um, uh, organizations. And so it is just sort of one step at a time, um, but realizing that all of the varied experiences that I had accumulated over the course of 20 years, um, uh, all of sudden made sense. Um, and what I mean by that is um, the work I had done uh, consulting for and advising other nonprofit organizations gave me insights into best practices and ways of doing things that I think have accelerated our own. Um, advising uh, pharmaceutical companies, I understand what their you know business and incentives are uh -huh. and how to create you know win-win partnerships that uh, that uh, benefited patients. My work inside um, healthcare insurance companies have allowed me to you know figure out solutions and um, collaborations that um, you know sort of cut through and 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 allow you know benefits um, to be more easily available uh, to to families and so you know decisions that I was making at the time that just seemed like you know the best or most interesting option for my personal career, you know, 20 years later, all come together and I'm really able to apply them to this sort of use case of how to make things easier for, for liver patients. And it sort of all makes sense now. So tell me what that means, because we're on the outside. We don't know what the difficulties are. I mean, we can imagine that there are not enough livers to go around, right? Or to get one when you need one. Is, is that what you're jumping ahead on? Sure. So when we think about, um, you know, the heart, we think about heart health and everybody knows about, you know, um, what their blood pressure should be, or they think about eating foods and, oh, I don't want to have high cholesterol, but you right. don't really need know what to do to make your liver healthy. So we're really just starting from sort of ground zero that your liver is important. It does more than 500 functions, um, creating awareness um, with uh, physicians uh, who oftentimes don't pay attention um, unless you're a hepatologist, but primary care physicians aren't really um, they don't have the, your liver health at the top of their list. And so making sure that primary care physicians are, are part of our coalitions, um, uh, doctors who treat diabetes um, and heart disease are part of our, our, our coalitions and are receiving education so they can be helpful in, in liver health. So it's physician education, it's patient education in terms of you know what signs and symptoms should be you be aware of. Um, I was on a, a you know a global uh, you know uh, webinar today, and the question was asked about um, I'm pregnant. What should I think about in my you know in my liver health? And we started talking about some of the signs of liver disease in pregnancy are like extreme itching, which you might not first you know top of mind not might not be that oh something's wrong with my liver. So skin, letting people know what the itching? signs and skin itching. So oh. it's called pruritus, and and okay. and often when um, your liver isn't processing bile, um, 
that ultimately, you know, if you see someone who's very yellow and jaundice, that's a right. very advanced case of that. But in the right. early uh, stages, it's just extreme itching. And mm. so um, it's called cholestatus of, of pregnancy. Um, and so many people wouldn't recognize that as a symptom of a liver disease. Um, and so just letting people know what signs and symptoms uh, may be. Um, it's also working with hospitals to make sure that they have um, connected and coordinated um, systems of care. So alerts in the electronic medical record that say um, everybody uh, should get these types of te blood tests or this type of imaging to be able to diagnose liver disease in early stages or helping them refer to um, this type of doctor at this at this stage. Most of those uh, systems aren't really connected in that way. Most patients um, with liver disease aren't coming in every six months for their liver cancer screening as they should be, as the guidelines suggest. And so helping hospitals set up those systems so that those things that are supposed to happen do happen. And then finally, with policymakers, because we don't have the research funding for liver diseases um, that we should within the various federal agencies or the ability to collect um, data out of CDC, for example, to know the extent of the problems with various liver diseases. So it's really, um, Applying my expertise to to get very very you know granular very very much a, um, a bringing my lived experience with some professional expertise and many many years here in Washington D.C. Um, to identify problems and align um, multiple organizations to solve them and to make it at the top of their list to solve and to hold people accountable for solving. You know, I, I started as a federal prosecutor. And so um, <laughs> okay. that, that's sort of my, I have a little bit of a, you know, doggedness uh, about um, holding people accountable for things. And so now I do that in, in healthcare and for people who have been overlooked, which are most patients with liver diseases. So you don't even, we don't even have an accounting of how many people have liver diseases or we don't even have those statistics yet? No, we really don't. Not completely. Oh my God. So when you think uh, like CDC has an office of viral hepatitis. And so we have an idea of, of, of how many have viral hepatitis, but we don't really know how many have fatty liver disease. There are some estimates as high as one in three people may have some form of fatty liver disease. And then we see numbers in, in liver cancer, but they're not all put together in a way that I can say, um, like for other diseases that for liver diseases as a whole, there are these many cases of these types. Um, and so, um, and, and in, and in which populations. So we, we know from the information we do have that for some populations, you know, liver cancer is the number two or number three cause of death. Um, whereas it may be treated as not even in the top 10 when you look, um, you know, sort of far back. And so until we have um, really good data, we can't have really good advocacy. Wow. 
I can't, what populations is it more common in? Who, who is more at risk? We do know that. It depends on the type of liver disease, but um, so um, there, hepatitis B and certain types of liver cancer affect um, Asian American and Pacific Islanders um, more heavily. African American men die more um, of, of liver cancer because they're diagnosed at very later stages. Um, hmm. Hispanics um, have high rates of fatty liver disease. And, hmm. and so um, that's why it's so important to have um, all of the different types of liver disease investigated and reported so that we can design these different types of solutions that are needed because there are 100 different types of liver disease, um, but cumulatively, they, they really uh, start to become a, a public health issue. And so we don't really know where it sits, like where they tell you that heart disease is the thing that you should be more worried about than breast cancer. We don't right. know where liver issues sit in that right. pantheon. Oh, right. wow, that's crazy. Okay, what about women 40 plus? Do you know if we're more more likely to be? Yes, so um, women of, of childbearing age are, are more likely um, to have um, autoimmune liver diseases like uh, primary biliary uh, cirrhosis uh, or cholangitis and, and, uh, and, and it really goes often misdiagnosed as, as other types of diseases as lupus or, or, or wow. other things. And um, there aren't medications. Uh, there aren't medications. I have a, a similar type of autoimmune disease and except for a transplant, there, there is no cure for it. And so that's the type of research that we need. Um, but particularly as, as women age and we lose you know, protective effects of, of estrogen, um, you know, our rates of heart disease and obesity and liver disease um, start to go up. Also, because the liver um, is very resilient and regenerates um, many types of liver disease um, do start to um, become more prevalent as people age. So we see rates of, of liver cancer going up for everyone. Um, uh, as as people as people age and you know fatty liver disease now which is rising with rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes is the number one reason for liver transplant in women in the US today wow now is I, i'm totally ignorant on this so forgive me is that related to alcoholism or it's other things no too? no not at all most liver diseases um, have no relationship to alcohol oh. and that's one of the big myths that you know we need to correct. There, of course, it are are some, and um, uh, excessive amounts of alcohol or binge drinking um, can exacerbate um, any type of liver disease. But most mm -hmm. liver diseases are caused by um, viruses or um, too much fat accumulation, or um, or you know genetic and autoimmune causes. Interesting. So now, did you get a law degree to start with? And then I did. I did go back after a semester. Um, I did go back and uh, finish law school and passed the bar. And I practiced at the Justice Department in the criminal division for a while. But um, 
I kept telling to my, my transplant surgeons, you know, such and such is wrong with the transplant system. Do you know such and such should be fixed in the transplant system? And they said, this is what we're going to do with you. And so they introduced me to uh, the organization that ran the nation's transplant system. And, and I worked there for four years. And then that, so you did have your law degree though, and then you just yes. switched over into advocacy. Yes, I, I uh, my original vision was to be a child welfare attorney. And I worked in the justice department in the criminal division in child exploitation and obscenity. And I was putting together um, uh, laws that crossed jurisdictions, um, laws that were, uh, as the internet was new, I'm telling my age now, um, applying law, uh, criminal law to an internet environment. So mm. um, child, uh, you know, so pedophiles preying on children, um, right. you know, through the computers and child trafficking and, and things like that um, were the types of really tough cases and issues that I was I was working on. Um, wow. So for somebody who is um, going through a health crisis of some sort and feels like they would like to apply their knowledge and to, you know, and their abilities mm -hmm. to something they see going wrong and that can be reformed or fixed or changed. Do you have a couple of, um, you know, do's and don'ts, some advice, things they should do, they shouldn't do? How do you, how do you sort of play that out to people who say, wow, that I'm, I would like to do something for this thing that I'm, I'm involved with. Right. So I think that, um, and we have an entire advanced advocacy academy that that helps people transition from patients to patient advocates. So this is something I I think about a lot. Um, I I like people to start with you know what was the problem that bothered you the most or that most you know stymied your family, um, and then identify the right lever or the right um, you know uh, body or entity that can fix it. One of the things that um, I find when I when I talk to patients is they'll tell me about a problem and then they'll say maybe they wrote letters to this agency or whatever. I was like, well, that agency doesn't have jurisdiction over that. That's not a problem with that. It's actually this. Um, and so understand learning, taking the time to, to learn about how the health system works so that you can really apply your advocacy to the right point um, is 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 something that's that's really important. And I, I also tell people, a lot of folks start want to say, you know, I'm going to start my own nonprofit organization. Like, don't, <laughs> if you don't have to. Um, I, I, you know, it was easier for me because I am an attorney and I know how to, you know, all the paperwork that's involved in, in a 501c3 and all the legal work and, and the, the, the banking work and all of that. If you don't have to do that, if you can find a an advocacy organization whose mission and and uh, you know, that aligns with the problem that you want to solve, that is you know well run, you know gets gold stars on Charity Navigator and uses their money well, um, partner with that organization, support that organization. You know the fragmentation that we see across you know so many nonprofit organizations. Um, actually sort of in, in many cases dilutes the effectiveness. And so if you can find an organization that's already existing and help them succeed, that is 
better than sort of going on your own and having bake sales and starting to do something new and conflicting. So, you know, that's, that's the other thing. I, I also want to say that um, uh, there can be so much good from um, doing something, doing something local. Um, I have uh, served on the patient advisory committee for my hospital, for example, and um, so much direct benefit, uh, so much learning, one, and so much direct benefit. Uh, when I go over to the hospital and I see the changes that have come out of that committee, um, it is so gratifying. And so, um, yes, I, you know, serve on global panels and, you know, affect the, you know, the, the health plans of, of entire nations, but it, it is equally, it's gratifying to just know that um, sharing an experience that I had um, and applying my, you know, my expertise, my thought process to some change at my local hospital means that my, you know, the per next person who, um, my neighbor, um, uh, gets better care is is equally as gratifying. And so, you know, you don't have to be on a huge stage and, and change your whole life um, to be able to make um, some real difference. Can you talk about your academy? What is that? And can anybody apply? Um, anybody can. Um, right now it is for um, patients and, and caregivers or families connected with, with liver disease. Um, but we have had a lot of people uh, use our model, um, starting to use our model for for other um, for other conditions. And except for the um, liver terminology uh, section, everything from telling your story to understanding how to make the most of a of a meeting with your you know legislator to understanding you know reimbursement and and insurance coverage are applicable to anybody with any health condition. So we would absolutely invite people to come and learn and, and perhaps take it to, to the other, to another organization. So you actually train people how to become an advocate and to we use do. their skills. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And we work with them to um, help them uh find um, and qualify for different opportunities. So some of our graduates have um, served like I have um, on uh, FDA advisory committees, which are involved in approving drugs. Um, some are reviewing uh, DOD grants. Some are principal investigators leading uh, clinical research studies uh, with, with physicians. And so that's the exciting part about helping people identify the the particular problem that they'd like to solve and helping give them the skills to be able to solve it and then finding that opportunity um, for for advocacy. So wow, that's It's incredible. exciting. We have 200 people who've gone through. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. That must make you feel really good. It does. It does. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, part of my legacy I feel like they're all my my children um out out and about um doing doing good work wow incredible is there anything else that you want to um tell our listeners about if they're going to try to reinvent themselves in this area I I think that um 
One of the things I've had to learn um, as that makes me a little different as a patient leading a patient advocacy organization and doing this is that I can't forget that I'm the first patient, uh, that I have to take care of myself first. And I think that's common to many women that we take care of others and, uh, and, and we don't remember to take care of ourselves. But that's just really so important to me. If I'm not healthy, um, then I can't lead the organization. I can't do the work. Um, but also so many other patients are in, you know, take their cues from me about how to treat themselves and what is possible for their own health. And so um, I had to recognize that it's as much a part of my advocacy to take a nap or take a walk or go to the gym um, and make my doctor's appointments as any of the other work that I do so that other patients can see me doing that. So I, I, I think taking care of myself and, to, and for your listeners to, to take care of themselves um, is an important part of their own advocacy. Awesome. Donna, where can people find you? And you know, just give them all your information. Where can we find you? What your social handles are and all of that? Sure. Um, personally, I am at uh, DC Patient on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything. Um, and the uh, Global Liver Institute is at Global Liver or at Global Liver on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. We have a lot of video content on, on YouTube. Um, and our website as well is uh, globalliver.org. Awesome. I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk. There are so many women who have so much intelligence and so much learned experience that they can apply to these things. I'm really in shock that we don't even have the, the statistics on some of this stuff at this day and age, we can, we're planning on landing a, a probe on Mars. But I we don't know have this info, like it's kind of crazy, right? Well, you know, we, I guess they've been waiting for this advocacy. So okay. I have found my purpose. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Donna. So nice to meet you and talk to you today. Thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Donna. What a rock star she is and what a great story. And I love her give back message. I hope any of you will take advantage of what she does, where you can come learn from her and you can spin out and help other people with issues in the healthcare industry. Goodness knows we need we need that help. Um, and it's not gonna get better by itself, but the wonderful thing is the individual can make a difference. I've always believed in the power of the individual and Donna is a perfect walking, talking example of that. If you are interested in more information about reinvention, mosey on over to coffeeclub.com and check out all we have just put in reinvention or reinvent um, into the uh, search engine there and you will find enough stuff to get you going for the next year. <laughs> and if you really are serious about your reinvention, come join the Covey Club. Oh my goodness, don't do this thing alone if you're about to actually start on your reinvention. Come where there's phenomenal women just like Donna, brilliant, smart, educated, who are trying to figure out what's next for them. And it's wonderful to do it together. We teach twice a week. We meet in special pods. We work on all our special needs, interests. We have accountability partners. 
we get together live, all kinds of things like that. It is a special group of women. It's small, it's a boutique, you will get to be known and you will make change, you will create movement. We see it, we know how to do it. And I hope that you'll join us. So until next time, thanks for listening.